what I've learned at Nextdoor as it relates to health is just how important your community can be in your longevity and your quality of life. And I think people really don't understand the full extent of this. You're listening to A Healthier Future, where we explore big ideas for transforming and improving the future of health, showcasing the most innovative solutions and best practices today. On this episode, I'm speaking with Prakash Janakiraman, co-founder and chief architect of Nextdoor, the widely popular hyper-local social network that's brought together almost 300,000 neighborhoods across 11 countries. Prakash and I talk about the inspiration for Nextdoor's creation, the importance of values to company culture, and how being part of a community can improve your quality of life. I'm Mark Harrison, and together we're building a healthier future. Prakash, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mark. I loved reading about you. Really interesting story. And as I was reading about how you got started in the computer world, it's an incredibly interesting story. People throw a baseball with their dad, and you may have done that, but your dad did much more for you than that. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with him and what you learned from him. I was really fortunate to have a father who had a lot of different interests, but in particular, he was deeply interested in technology and science. So my dad immigrated to this country in the late 1960s to come to UC Berkeley and to pursue his master's degree in mechanical engineering. And so he was a mechanical engineer by trade. So he liked to tinker around with things. Some of my earliest memories of my dad were me wearing little overalls that matched his bigger overalls. And he'd be under the car on the weekends or mowing the grass or doing all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, he had a fascination with how things worked. He liked to take things apart and put them back together. And so I think there were really three. Were you NoCal or SoCal? No, I was up in the Bay Area, actually. I grew up um, in a city called Hayward, California, which is about 10 miles south of Oakland in the East Bay. And so Silicon Valley was just on the other side of the bridge. And I think I was really lucky in that there were three conditions that really shaped my experience early in my life in technology. Number one, I was born in the 70s and turning over in the 80s as I was an elementary school student, the rise of the PC revolution and really bringing these mainframe computers that long had been the standards of academia in these institutions of academia and research. Now, all of a sudden, you could fit one of those computers in your house. And during that time, there were the wars between Apple and IBM. Microsoft was coming up. And I was just a little kid. I didn't have any understanding of any of this, except for when video games became a part of the culture. The games that you could only play at the pizzeria or down in the arcades, suddenly now you can play them at home. And so I remember those early days of computing really fascinated my father and we were here in Silicon Valley in the groundswell of all of this activity and innovation. You were like in the fertile crescent of technology, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just experiencing it all around. And my dad had this fascination with it because he worked for a company called BTI Computer Systems. They were doing these time-sharing systems, these big computers that were at the time being used by different manufacturing companies and research institutions and such. And so when the personal computing revolution came around, he had a head start on that. He knew what computers were. He knew about programming computers. He knew what was possible. And at the time, there were computer clubs and computer shows and all kinds of things that you'd only find in Silicon Valley. And so we happened to be there. And my dad took a great interest in computer programming and bought a little PC at home that we used to tootle around on. He taught me basic programming first, then Pascal, and then eventually programs like C. 
And so by the time I was 10 years old, I had an Atari 2600 system. So I was playing Pac-Man and Dig Dug and whatever other you know fun games were on there and play those with my friends. But then in the evenings, my dad would teach me how to touch type and would teach me how to program computers and really simple stuff like little programs that would spit out what you typed in or little programs that would be, I guess, the equivalent of really dumb artificial intelligence today. But I had that early exposure. And then the third condition that I think was really interesting was that my school didn't have any of these. We didn't have a computer lab. We didn't have any of these facilities. But again, my dad cared about it. And my dad had this fascination with technology and science that he instilled in me at a really early age. So I had a leg up on everybody when it came to that stuff. And I'm really grateful to him. Aren't you lucky to have a dad who loved you so much and believed in you and invested in you in that way? That's such respect that he showed to you by spending his time and energy and believing that you could really understand this complicated stuff. So I am trying desperately to learn Spanish as an adult. And I'm terrible at it, Prakash, like terrible. And one of the things I've learned is when you read about language acquisition, there's a plasticity period that makes it much different to learn a language as a primary language as opposed to secondary. And I wonder whether this early exposure to computers and to programming hit you at a time when your brain was still really plastic and if it changed the way you think. What do you think about that? I think it's absolutely true. You see this in a lot of different types of activities, whether it's learning to play the piano or learning to pick up a new language or other instruments and things like that. And I I do feel for me, the time was right for me to just soak it all up like a sponge. I think if you ask my dad, he probably had to pull me along a little bit sometimes because I think sometimes you've got to learn things in the sequence, like anything, if you want to be a master at something It starts with the fundamentals and then you move on to the quote unquote fun stuff. And I'm sure there were days where I was just like, dad, when am I going to get to make the video game that I want to make? You know, first you have to learn how to print out hello world. And then you need to learn how to print out some other silly thing. And and you need to learn to type in this specific way. And, And so I'm sure I was probably like any little kid, probably impatient to get to the fun stuff. But it's interesting because I do think what you describe in terms of your capacity to learn these things and these complex concepts and the plasticity of your brain, I definitely feel like at age 10 or 11 or whenever I was learning these things, pretty ripe conditions for me to learn. That's fabulous. Okay, so let's assume that our listeners have never heard of Nextdoor, okay? Mm -hmm. So you're a co-founder of Nextdoor. Sarah Fryer is your partner, right? Yeah, she's our CEO. That's right. Let's tell our listeners, what is Nextdoor, Prakash? I bet most of them actually have it and use it, but (laughs) maybe not everybody. Nextdoor is an application that was created to connect people in their local communities. And we describe our purpose, the reason the company exists, the change that we want to see in the world, our 100-year vision, as being to cultivate a kinder world. That's a world where everyone has a neighborhood that they can rely on. And so really underlying this concept of next door is this idea of communities and strong and safe communities. But it starts with the people in those communities. And those people are residents of the local community. They're people that are small business owners in the community. They're local organizations and nonprofits and even the municipal government agencies. And so what we aim to do on next door is to bring all of those constituents together in an online platform where you can communicate with them about everyday needs like reuniting with a lost pet, or buying and selling and trading things with your neighbors, or even banding together during a time of a natural disaster and sharing resources. 
And so we see millions of neighbors come to our platform every day. We're in use in 11 countries around the world. And in the U.S., where we've been the longest, we have one in three households in the United States using our platform right now. Amazing. So it's a great way for you to not only gain some familiarity with who lives in your neighborhood and who are the people around you, but also to use those people as a hive mind of local, authentic knowledge. So whether you're trying to get a recommendation for a babysitter or a plumber, the people who live in your community are the ones that have the knowledge about who's the best in your community. And so it's a really interesting resource at a time when many people just don't know their neighbors and they don't have access to that hive mind of knowledge. We're trying to bring back that sense of community to neighborhoods all over the planet. So we love Nextdoor and uh, we particularly love it at our place up in Park City. Our daughter was out, who's in her 20s, was out hiking with one of her dogs, a pit bull border collie mix who took off after an elk and disappeared. And she was terrified and she got on Nextdoor and within 45 minutes, we found out that Lucy was in somebody's backyard. She was perfectly safe. The dog was collected. It was all good and disaster forestalled. We're really appreciative. Wow, amazing. And it's also a great source for cougars and bobcats and coyotes that get captured on people's doorbell cams that people love to post on Nextdoor. Oh, yeah. But what I really want to get into for a second is community is a social determinant of health. And loneliness, lack of connection is really associated with poor health outcomes, both physical and behavioral health outcomes. And talk a little bit about how you and your colleagues at Nextdoor think about your contribution to a healthier world. Yeah, for sure. The foundation of Nextdoor, the inspiration for Nextdoor was really research that showed that in the United States over the past century or so, we have seen this precipitous decline in social capital, the number of people that people know in their local communities that they can rely on for help and favors. And so in 2010, when we were founding the company, the little nugget of inspiration was a Pew Research Institute study that came out that said that 29% of neighbors surveyed said that they only knew some, which really implies few of their neighbors. But this really, really surprised me, Mark. 28% of respondents said that they didn't know a single neighbor by name. So living in complete isolation of those around them. And so when you fast forward today and you look at some of the stats on loneliness as an epidemic, it truly is an epidemic, you see that compounded by increasing rates of depression and loneliness and um, anxiety because of the COVID pandemic, really this, the help of, and support of your neighbors comes into full view. It's a place where you can really take action to feel more connected in your community. And so one of the things that we launched was something that we call the KIND Challenge, and the KIND Challenge was based on some research that we did. It was first of its kind global research in partnership with an expert in loneliness. Her name was Julianne Holt-Lundstad. She actually serves on what we call our Neighborhood Vitality Advisory Board. It's a group of social justice, civil rights, loneliness, academic um, experts that we work with to shape our product. And she found that knowing as few of, as six of your neighbors greatly reduced the likelihood that you would feel lonely. And that it's linked to lowering depression, social anxiety, financial concerns, all of these anxieties that people hold because of the COVID pandemic. And this comes from just performing simple acts of kindness, like waving hello to a neighbor, saying hi, just interacting with neighbors. And so we think that Nextdoor is an important platform to start that conversation. It's a place where you can start to create what we call online social capital 
So through every interaction on Nextdoor, whether it's, hey, neighbors, I'm looking for a recommendation for dot, 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 babysitter or plumber, your neighbors respond in a helpful and kind way. And all of a sudden, you know who some of your neighbors are because you see their names, you see their faces, and they live within proximity of you. And so you have the opportunity to actually meet these people. And in the case that you described where, for example, a lost pet is reunited with their owner, there's actually a physical interaction in the real world that then amplifies that social capital and brings it to life. And that helps you towards your goal of getting to six neighbors. And so it's a really important research, I think. I appreciate that. I will also say that it has driven microeconomic stimulation based on my wife's ability to buy used stuff on Nextdoor. So Prakash, I'm not sure you're my favorite guy on that front, but it's been really good for the neighborhood. <laughs> hey, look, sharing, sharing is caring, Mark. We know that, right? <laughs> Let me ask you another question. I love this idea of social equity, of civility, as well as social justice. How do you bridge tribes as opposed to create tribes through mm -hmm. next door? Because I think there could be a risk. Hey, one community is a Latinx community. One community is a black community. One community, you know, what, whatever the demographics are. And the last thing it sounds like you'd want to do is actually to create walls between those communities. But probably bridges are what you desire. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. And I think the most important is to think about the design of the network as being very different than what you see typically in social media. We think of ourselves as a utility-based network that's based on proximity, not preference. So let's dig under the hood on that for a second. If you look at the landscape of social media apps like Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, you name it, there's so many different participants in this world today. But all of them are really based on affinity. It's this idea that on Facebook, you connect with the friends and family that you know. On Twitter, you select and curate a list of people that you follow, similar on Instagram, that you share interests with or that you share ideology with. And that creates these filter bubbles of ideology. It's like your television. You can change the channel to... These are like giant echo chambers, man. Yeah, they're monster echo chambers. And it's because you are creating and cultivating and curating what you're listening to. Nextdoor is different. The key to unlocking the network is your location. So you come on to Nextdoor, you sign up with your real name and your physical address, and we put you into the neighborhood that reflects your analog, your offline neighborhood online. And just as you don't choose who the people are that live in your neighborhood, you don't choose who the people are on your neighborhood on Nextdoor either. So it actually reflects the diversity of opinions and concerns and points of view that are endemic to your neighborhood. And I think that's really important because as we think about every problem at scale, think about everything that's going on in this country, at least in the United States, polarization, economic inequity, social justice issues, racial equity, everything kind of starts in the community in which you live. The unit of change can be the neighborhood. By making sure that we don't create those filter bubbles because it's truly egalitarian, like everyone can participate on Nextdoor. The key to unlock it is just where you live. We have conversations out in the open. We want neighbors to be able to talk about whatever issues, you know, we understand we live in the zeitgeist, right? So whatever happens in the world, whatever anxieties and tensions in the world, we'll spill over into our platform. But it's less likely that you're going to end up in a filter bubble or, or an echo chamber because it's really reflective of who's in your community and who's participating. That is so great. Now, in anticipation of visiting with you, I 
got on a number of those platforms that you just described. And a couple of them are just really unhappy places right now. And I think it's that us versus them, that algorithm-driven neighborhood as opposed to geographically driven neighborhood. And with the exception of some people who complained about dogs being off leash uh, next door, it has a different vibe to it. And I, maybe it is that lack of anonymity that plays a huge role. And it's really pretty hard to hate people you actually know. In fact, you generally, it's pretty hard not to like people you actually know. And I think you're really contributing there. I'd love to ask you what it feels like when you meet with your executive team and your frontline workers to be working in a company that is actively trying to promote a better world. Do you talk about that? Is it a recruitment tool? Is it a retention tool? That idea of doing good and doing well is pretty powerful. We all feel very fortunate about the opportunity that's presented to us and the opportunity that's formulated in our purpose statement. It's something that underlies all the work that we do. We really think about it as purpose, mission, core values. That's the base of the company. And so whether it's deciding who belongs in the company in terms of how we recruit people and how we interview them and how we match them to our values and to our culture. We're doing that explicitly through purpose, mission, and core values. So it really is an important instrument in everything that we do, from recruiting to determining what product features we work on to determining what areas we invest in in the company. And so I think there's a few different ways in which this shows up. Number one, as we think about creating that kinder world, we're not blind to the society that we live in. We're not blind to the headwinds that we're up against in terms of a more polarized, more divided society than we've seen in a really long time. And what it means is that as a company, we have to be bold in asserting our values and putting that purpose front and center, not just to our employees, but to participants on our platform. We have to be very clear about what we stand for and what we don't stand for. So good examples of this are around things like racial justice. We believe that if we're going to create neighborhoods where everyone feels a sense of belonging, then we have to be an actively anti-racist company. And so there was a time last year where we really wanted to think about ways that we could support our black neighbors in particular on the platform and stand with them in solidarity in this idea that everyone belongs in the neighborhood. And there have been some really contentious issues around this, including people using phrases like white lives matter to undercut the movement for black lives. And we came in and we said, no, we're not going to allow that to be said on our platform. And some would see this as a form of censorship. Some would say, what do you mean I can't say that white lives matter? But we actually did this through a mechanism that started with something that we called the kindness reminder. The kindness reminder is basically an interstitial. It's an intervention that we put up in the product where as you're posting a message, if that message looks through machine learning like messages that have been reported in the past as violating our community guidelines, we'll pause you and we'll say, hey, the message you're posting may be hurtful to your neighbors. We'd consider that you should probably think about reframing it in a different way. And this is based on some research that we did with Jennifer Eberhardt, who's a professor at Stanford, she runs the Spark Research Lab there, that says that if you can just get people out of their reptilian brain, just slow them down a little bit, and get them thinking through their frontal cortex where rational thought occurs, you can change behaviors. You can get people out of that fight or flight response to a place where they can be a little bit more calm and rational. So if you slowed somebody down, did they end up changing their message? Did they end up leaving the platform? Did they end up persisting with the message that the kindness reminder had been triggered on? What happened? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because 
like north of 30% of people who encountered that would change their message. That's a material change in the behavior on the platform. We may want that to be closer to 100%. The algorithm itself isn't always perfect. Sometimes you're in the heat of a conversation or in the heat of something contentious, and things can raise to a higher temperature. What we want to make sure of is things don't devolve into something toxic or discriminatory or going into a bad place. These interventions really do work. You start to see them now on other platforms. And we think of ourselves as a pioneer in some of that research and some of the ways that we've modified our product. And one other example I just wanted to share, Mark, is around things like racial profiling. We know that this is a big issue in the real world. And sometimes those big issues will find their way into platforms like ours. And we did some research again with the Stanford Laboratory, with folks in the community, to design an entirely different flow, a product workflow that introduces friction into people posting messages around crime and safety to make sure that they weren't just reporting issues on the basis of simply someone's race, but really describing what was the circumstance of what happened? What was the person wearing? What were some attributes of this person beyond their race? to really build a more complete picture of things like criminal activity or suspicious activity. And again, this is an area where slowing people down, getting them out of that flight or flight response, and really thinking rationally about the consequences of things that they're posting on the platform was really important to us. So coming back to purpose, this is all about laddering up to that place where everyone has a neighborhood they can rely on and that we're cultivating kindness through the platform. As I speak with you, authenticity whole person-ness sort of oozes out of you. And it's great. And can you talk a little bit beyond your next door world? Who are you as a person, Prakash? What, what do you love to do? What gives you great pleasure outside of work? I know your work gives you great meaning and pleasure. Because I think people are often interested in a conversation like this. Can I relate to this guy? Do I have some of the same attributes that Prakash does? Can you share a little bit about you as a human being? Yeah, I guess I've never really reflected on this deeply, but I think what really gets me up in the morning is I, first and foremost, I'm a real people person. The pandemic has been really hard for me because I'm such an extrovert. I'm such a social person. I love to be around friends and family. And it really doesn't matter what we're doing. We could just be sitting and having a meal, going for a walk, going to a sporting event, playing a sport. I love people and I love learning about their stories. I love sharing life experiences, comparing and contrasting life experiences. And so I think that was something that I can remember just as a little kid being that way. I never wanted to be in the house by myself doing my homework. I wanted to be out with friends, running around, having fun. And if I did need to do my homework, I wanted to do it with other people. I'm a real extrovert. And I think the second thing that I think probably most people who know me would say is something that they would know about me from the jump is I love music. I love hip-hop music. I grew up, again, in the Bay Area, and so hip-hop music is in my roots. And again, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, which were really the golden age of hip-hop music, hip-hop and R&B music. And so I think I have an old soul in that way. I like hip-hop music from that generation. I like old soul and R&B and funk from the 60s and 70s. And then I love sports. My favorite sport is basketball. I remember dribbling a basketball as, as young as five or six years old, playing in high school and playing in intramurals in college. I wish I could play more. My hips and knees at age 46 aren't what they used to be. Wait till you're 58, dude. So, <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, man. I can't wait. <laughs> but yeah, I've had Warriors, Golden State Warriors season tickets for 15 years or something and seen some good years and some really bad years uh, for that team also. But I love community, really love sports, really love music. 
And that's what I love about work at the end of the day. I love software engineering as this expression of ideas that you can just test in the wild. As a software engineer, you can write a piece of code, you can write a program that then gets used by millions of people all over the world. But you don't do that by yourself. Programming is an individual activity, but software engineering is a team sport. That's the way we talk about it here at Nextdoor. And so we get groups of people together and we get on a whiteboard and we think up different ideas and then we decompose those big problems into smaller solutions and we experiment and learn quickly. And that's the stuff that I love about work is just banding together and solving these big problems and trying things and throwing things up against the wall and seeing what sticks. It's great when somebody blows up stereotypes. This idea that you use technology to express your extroverted and people-oriented nature is the opposite of what most people think of in your industry, right? But maybe it's no surprise that yeah. you created Nextdoor and not a fintech tool, maybe. Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> As we get towards the end of things here, I'd like a couple of pieces of advice. One is I'd be interested in what advice you give to aspiring leaders. You've been brave and driven and creative. What advice might you give to somebody who'd like to emulate you? And then maybe the second piece of advice would be, what would you tell a healthcare organization like Intermountain that's organized around keeping people well? about what you've learned from next door and what we might take from you to make people's lives healthier yet. Let's start with the second one first. And I think what I've learned at next door as it relates to health is just how important your community can be in your longevity and your quality of life. And I think people really don't understand the full extent of this. In his seminal work called Bowling Alone, Dr. Robert Putnam describes in this book the conditions that led to this decline in social capital over the years. But really the interesting part is at the end, he describes how important social capital is to better outcomes in people's lives. And he does this through empirical research and study of communities all over the country. And he shows that in communities where you have more social capital, outcomes get better. Crime rates drop, property values increase, education and test outcomes improve. But more importantly, people live longer in communities in which they have the support of their friends and neighbors. And this kind of parallels the research that we did that shows that knowing as few as six of your neighbors can actually decrease the probability that you'll be depressed or lonely. Whether it's institutions like yours, institutions like Kaiser and the larger hospitals, I think you start to see this focus on community building as being a central thesis in improving the quality of people's lives. How can people look out for each other? How can people stay mentally sharp? How can people stay physically active? And I think a lot of that is just about activating your neighbors and activating those people with whom you're in proximity of. So I think that's a really important pillar of any good healthcare strategy is how can we activate our communities to look out for one another again and to bring that tribal, they used to say it takes a village to raise a child. And certainly for me and the rest of the founding team at Nextdoor, we thought back to our childhoods and remembered that we had the support of our neighbors and we knew the kids in the neighborhood and the parents in the neighborhood and how formative that was in our experiences as children and how it shaped the way that we experienced the world as adults. And so I think there's something, there's a thread to be pulled on even further in how community can be contributing to people's improved quality of life. I completely believe in what you say. And in fact, that's why we're organized the way we are at Intermountain, that we, like Kaiser, the majority of our revenue actually comes from, and we're not for profit, but 
we mm-hmm. still are a business, is organized around keeping people well. And we recognize the role of community health workers. Does Nextdoor offer a function where people can volunteer to do things for other people? Like I can put on Nextdoor, I'm available to mow a lawn on Saturday. Does anybody need that? I'd be happy to pick up food at the grocery store for somebody who happens to be unable to get out of their house. And has that been used systematically to try and experiment to intentionally build community? Yeah, it's a great question, Mark. In fact, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, so starting in March, when the first shelter-in-place orders came through and people started to retreat back into their communities and homes, we saw a nearly 80% rise in usage of our platform. And again, I think it's because people needed to rely on the resources that were local in their community because they weren't able to drive to and from work and such. And during that time, what we noticed organically happening on the platform was that young, healthy, able-bodied people were offering to run errands for senior citizens in the community and elderly and disabled people who couldn't go to the grocery store, who couldn't go to pick up their prescriptions because it was just too risky. And so we actually developed a feature that we call the help map. And we did that within the first two weeks of the pandemic to really allow people to, at their addresses, you could look at a map and you could see the homes and the people in the community that would volunteer for different things and that could say, I'm available if you need me to go run an errand for you, if you need a ride, if you need groceries picked up, if you need your yard you know, mowed, whatever help people needed. And then people can also lodge requests for help and say, hey, I'm elderly or disabled. I need help with dot, dot, dot. And so I think the foundation of something like what you describe is all there, but we saw increased usage of that feature pretty dramatically over you know, the, the following months on the platform with neighbors just offering to help one another. And also it wasn't just about the act of physically helping, but it was about sharing resources. Right. So if you remember, like at the beginning of the pandemic, people were running out of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. And again, there were some people who were stockpiling that and saying, actually, I have more than I need. You can have some as well. Right. And so it was a really tremendous opportunity to bring people together in that way. If you'd like to, I think my team would be really interested in brainstorming with yours as we seek to build healthier people through healthier communities. If there's a way of using that help function systematically within some of our geographies, I think we'd be really interested in exploring that with you. So talk for a second about the advice you'd give to others. That young person, she wants to be the next precaution, start a company that does good and does well at the same time. What advice would you give to her? The first piece of advice I would give to her is lead through values and purpose. And so ultimately, all of our companies exist in some way to achieve some level of change in our societies and in our world. And so think about the problems that you want to solve in the world and how you might uniquely be positioned to solve those problems. And that's kind of where we started with Nextdoor was the research that showed that so few people knew their neighbors, but the research on the other hand that showed how important it was to know your neighbors to improve the outcomes in people's quality of life. And so starting with purpose is really important. What are you trying to achieve in the world? A lot of people think about starting companies as a means to achieve generational wealth or to improve their own circumstances. And and certainly that's important. I can empathize and understand that. But that starts with doing something meaningful in the world and thinking about the change that you want to see. And to be clear, entrepreneurship isn't always the best way to achieve that. Sometimes it's not the best idea to start a company. It might be better to go join a company and bolster their ability to to solve problems. And so I think the choice to go start a company is one that needs to be made very thoughtfully. And the second part of it is just finding great people to work with. 
I think people forget that work is a team sport and the underlying mechanics of the team are rooted in the culture that you bring and the culture that you build. And the culture that you build sits atop the values that you espouse. And so being really intentional and explicit about what your core values are. For us at Nextdoor, there's six core values. Starts with earning trust every day, investing in community, being customer obsessed, thinking big, experimenting and learning quickly, and acting like an owner. Those are pithy phrases, but underneath the hood of each one of those core values lies examples of how that manifests internally in our culture and externally, how we show up in the world. And those core values come into play in all kinds of decisions, who you're going to hire into the company, decisions around who you're going to partner with, decisions around your branding and naming and the way that you ship product features. Everything comes back to core values at some point of it. And as someone who's trying to lead You want to make sure that initially when you start a company, sometimes the leadership becomes a little bit of cult of personality and the identity of the organization really ties closely to the identity of the founder or the leader. But for you to scale an organization and really bring that to a place where you can build a a robust and healthy culture, you need to make that less about cult of personality and more about core values, purpose, and mission, and something that you can really codify. And then the last thing I would say, not all of your influences are going to come through the company. So surrounding yourself with a great support system, whether it's your friends and family, whether it's your activities outside of work that you can really use to blow off steam, and then a great group of mentors, you can call and say, look, I have no idea what I'm doing. We're about to be in a global pandemic and go to remote work, and I've never done this before. Have you? And to get advice from a good set of peers, that has been the biggest godsend for me. And I'm so thankful that in my journey through Silicon Valley, I dropped out of school 25 years ago at UC Berkeley to join my first startup. And that startup and the folks that I met at that startup, it was a company called Excite during the first dot-com boom, served as the basis and network from which every other opportunity in my life came. Whether it was leading teams at Google or building the company that we have today and meeting my co-founders, every single one of those opportunities came through the network and the opportunities that I built in that first job. Do your time, learn, grow, go into a place where you have the opportunity to learn and grow and cultivate your skills and build your network, and then use that network to find great people that you want to work with to build the kind of company and to enact the kind of change that you want to see in the world. I think that's how it comes together. That's just great. You said something that really resonated with me, this idea of somebody said, I want to start this company to build generational wealth. And I've heard people talk about having that as a goal. Young people say, I want to be the CEO of a big company like you. And I always tell them the same thing as I know a lot of people who have generated enormous wealth. And I know a lot of people who are the CEOs of big companies, and I don't know a single one of them who ever started out with that as their primary goal. Right. <laughs> um, they followed some sort of passion or a relationship with somebody they really admire, just like you describe. And sometimes those good things are outcomes of following a virtuous path. And I think that's really super duper powerful. Okay. Final question. Sure. And one that I tend to ask people, and you've alluded to some of this, So give me an example of the time when you took the biggest risk to make good trouble in the world. Biggest risk to make good trouble in the world. In my life, I've been very fortunate both through work and through kind of opportunities that have sprung out of work that we've done to be in some really meaningful circumstances. 
And a few of those meaningful circumstances are just organizations and activities that I've gotten to be a part of. And the one that is very meaningful for me is an institution here in San Francisco. It's run out of the University of San Francisco, and it's called the Institute of Nonviolence and Social Justice. And it was founded by Dr. Clarence B. Jones, who was Martin Luther King's personal attorney and one of his closest friends and allies for years. And Dr. Jones is now 92 years old. I happened to just find out about this institute through Stephen Curry, actually, on The Warriors, did a presentation with Dr. Jones where they were talking about the landscape of what's going on in the world around racial justice and social justice, particularly after the murder of George Floyd. And I remember inside of our company, like most companies in in the country, we were trying to understand what role we played in advancing the, the cause of racial justice, how to manage some of the craziness that was happening on platforms like ours and others, where people were angry and people didn't know what to do and became increasingly combative and despondent. And I remember that conversation led me to just shoot Dr. Jones an email and say, hey, my name's Prakash. I have this company next door. We operate in one out of every three households in the country. And I believe in the work that you're doing. And I want to find ways to take some of the research that your students and your community are doing and bring that into our company and help out. And Dr. Jones and his partner, Dr. Greenberg, Jonathan Greenberg, who runs the Institute, they reached out to me and they invited me to join the leadership council there. Wow. And I thought to myself, God, what did I do to deserve this opportunity to be a part of this community with these civil rights icons, including people like Ambassador Andrew Young is part of this organization as well. I think the work that we do at Nextdoor on a day-to-day basis is that good trouble. I, I don't feel like it's an acute thing that we've done. It's every single day we're getting in good trouble in trying to really promote this counterculture movement of kindness. And again, in a world that's more polarized and divided than ever, but By doing it, and by doing it in our own authentic and genuine and purpose-driven way, we're able to invite people like Dr. Jones and others around the table. Folks like Derek Johnson from the NAACP, he's the CEO of the NAACP. Somehow I happened to meet this man and have brown liquor and cigars with him in a bar in Detroit one day. And he is now on our advisory board and leadership council here at Nextdoor. And so it's that kind of good trouble that I want to keep getting into. I want to keep fighting for these things around racial justice, social justice, making sure that we really do take this opportunity with this incredible platform and huge audience that we have to promote the kind of world, the multiracial democracy that we want to live in. So that's the kind of good trouble I want to get into And that's where I spend my time outside of the company is with organizations like the Nonviolence and Social Justice Institute, with organizations like CEOs Advancing Racial Equity and Belonging as a UC Berkeley institution, through the NAACP and our participation there. There's so many great organizations doing great work. And I just feel super fortunate that the company gets to leverage their expertise and their frontline innovations to try and build a better world through our platform. Perfect. So Prakash... What a privilege to speak with you. Thank you for living your values. And thank you for creating a humane social media platform to build kindness across our neighborhoods. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to meet you. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm Mark Harrison, CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. Thanks for joining us today as we work together to build a healthier future. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, then rate and leave a review. Your feedback will help us bring you better episodes each week. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.